Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with David Ware, a non-resident senior fellow here at RFF. As anyone knows who's recently breathed the air in the Northeast or the Midwest, wildfires are increasingly posing risks to human health, the environment, and the climate. In a recent RFF issue brief, Dave analyzed how scaling up management of federal forests through forest fuel treatments could reduce wildfires and the damage that they cause. I'll ask Dave about recent trends in wildfire, how forest fuel treatments can address this growing problem, and much more. Stay with us. All right, David Ware, my colleague from Resources for the Future, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. So Dave, we're going to talk today about wildfires and forest fuel management and its implications for greenhouse gas emissions from forests, um, which is something that's you know been on many of our minds lately. But before we do that, we always ask our guests how they got interested in working on environmental issues. So what um, sort of inspired you to take this career path? Well, for me, I, I think it started with just a natural love of the outdoors. Uh, as a teenager, I spent many many weekends and weeks backpacking, usually in the Southern Appalachians. Um, When I was 21, I moved to Montana and hoped to work on a a trail crew uh, with the Forest Service. I I did land a job with the Forest Service, but they sent me to an office. And uh, Hmm. I wound up working with a group of economists and modelers addressing uh, public land controversies. And, uh, you know, from that day forward, that's all I've worked on. That's fascinating. Where did you grow up? I grew up in southwestern Ohio. Uh-huh. Yeah. Great. So as I mentioned a, a couple of moments ago, we're going to talk about wildfires and forest fuel management. Um, but before we kind of get into those specific issues, it would be great if you could, um, you know, get us up to speed on uh, what's been happening in the last couple of years in terms of wildfires, particularly in the western United States, uh, and just sort of help us understand where we are this year uh, in terms of uh, wildfires and what we might expect to see for the rest of the year. And I'll, I'll just note that we're recording this on July 22nd, so um, you might be hearing this about a week or two after we record the conversation. Um, so Dave, where, where are we uh, kind of historically and then in this year's season? Well, you know, wildfire seasons vary from year to year, and uh, we've had some really explosive years. Last year was a was a very explosive year in, in wildfire, um, and overall, over the last 15 years or so, uh, fire area and the intensity of fire has been trending up. We're seeing more of what people call megafires. Um, you know, this year, it looks like it's going to be another another above average uh, <laughs> The, the new the new average um, year um, there's uh, extensive drought in the west uh, as we've seen already there's higher than average temperatures and especially the Pacific Northwest so the the fire prediction models say that we're expecting above average of fire uh, throughout the Pacific Northwest and the northern Rockies and in California which big area um, so right now I, I looked at the the National Interagency Fire Center's uh, news. Uh, there are about 78 uh, large wildfires underway, and uh, 2.6 million acres have burned already this this season. Wow. 
and and the effects of those uh, fires, you know, we're increasingly learning about the health effects, uh, not just for safety, but also for air quality and, you know, the sort of major uh, implications that, that those impacts uh, have for populations living really far away, right? It's been really hazy on the East Coast and in the Midwest lately. Oh, no doubt. I mean, anybody who's sensitive to particulate is is likely to struggle this year. Um, and because of what the, the jet stream is doing right now, we're seeing, even in North Carolina, um, hazy days and, and higher than normal uh, particulate levels. Yeah. Yeah. Here in Michigan, where I live, I've definitely been seeing it and, and really, yeah, it's really disconcerting. But um that's that's kind of a topic for another podcast, probably, the, the human health implications of these fires. We're going to focus today primarily on greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so can you help us get a sense of how forest fires contribute domestically and globally to greenhouse gas emissions and how that might sort of be changing over time? Yeah, I, you know, I think it's important to start with the important notion that uh, fires a, a natural part of forested ecosystems. In North America, our, our forests are fire adapted. That means fire plays an essential role in producing a healthy forest. Um, you know, fires uh, regenerate, uh, reinitiate growth, but they have this important role in defining the, the structure, including the species composition of forests. So another way to look at it is Fire is just a part of the terrestrial carbon cycle. You know, uh, fires put carbon dioxide in the air, and then forest growth pulls carbon dioxide out of the air and sequesters it in the ground. And so, you know, at it, some, you know, broad scale, you've got some equilibrium with a certain amount in the air and a certain amount in the ground. Um, as we've come through better than a century of fire suppression, um, this natural fire regime, which involves a lot of low intensity fires, uh, has been disrupted. And so as forests have become overgrown because of fire suppression, um, when there is a fire, it tends to be much more intensive. And and uh, we get massive releases of, of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. Um, and, and, and there's increasing evidence that this, um, this new fire regime is actually changing the structure of forests so that storage capacity of the forest is diminished over time. So we've shifted that equilibrium to more carbon in the air and less on the ground. So we can think of it, you know, as moving from a natural fire regime to this this interrupted fire regime that has a very different set of dynamics and, you know, is perhaps best characterized by these megafires that I mentioned earlier. Um, overall, in the United States, um, Fires emit, you know, on average over the last 10 years, about 100 million metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalents every year. And during the big fire years, the um, these episodic high fire years, uh, we can see that almost double um, up toward 180 million metric tons. Yeah, so pretty pretty substantial. And And is it fair to say that, you know, where there used to be a balance between the CO2 going out from wildfires and the CO2 being taken up by new growth? is Are we now in a sort of imbalance where those 100 million metric tons are, you know, additional to what uh, otherwise would be taken out of the air? Yeah, I think it's safe to say that some portion of that 100 million metric tons um, is is an addition to rather than a, 
uh, just a part of the that balance. Um, but it's also important to note that you know this this is based on emerging research um, and increasing evidence that we're seeing the shift in capacity. So, in some cases, forests move to a different species composition. In other cases, forest cover is replaced by this persistent shrub cover that obviously has much less capacity to hold carbon in the ground. That's really interesting. So let's talk now about a topic that you've put a lot of thought into, which is this issue of forest fuel treatments. Um, forest fuel treatments are obviously you know, very different from suppression. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm hoping you can help us understand what forest fuel treatments are, uh, how different types of them vary across uh, dimensions, and then also help us understand how they can help reduce the potential for these excess greenhouse gas emissions from wildfires. Okay. You know, I, I think of uh, fuel treatments as a way to build um, fire-resilient forest infrastructure. Um, and by that, I mean uh, changing the condition of the forest so that its, its response to fire is closer to that natural fire regime that I mentioned a, a minute ago. Uh, in effect, it's a way to reverse the, the effects of fire suppression over these many decades. Um, by removing vegetation from forest and restructuring that vegetation so it's not so easy for a fire to, to, to reach the crown. Um, there, there are basically two types of forest fuel treatments. Uh, one is prescribed burning, where you set a fire under controlled circumstances and burn off a certain amount of the vegetation. The other is a mechanical treatment, where you uh, mechanically cut down vegetation and remove it from the site. And in some cases, mechanical treatments are used to produce some products, um, and, and those products then have some long-term carbon benefits as well. Um, so, so most importantly, they, they, they work to limit the intensity of a fire when it comes along. Um, and then one other element of, of, of fuel treatments that's important to, to know is that within a, a, a landscape, uh, or what they call a fire shed now, um, it's it's uh, important to target um, some some key parts of that landscape. Um, in other words, if you you don't have to treat the entire landscape, you can target treatments to places that will limit the ability of the fire to spread and to produce a mega fire. And uh, that's that's an emerging emerging area in fire science uh, that that's really pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. And. I, I'm wondering if you can maybe help us kind of picture what some of these treatments look like. So if you're imagining the two major types of treatments that you described, prescribed burns and then mechanical interventions, like if we were out there watching uh, uh, folks at work um, implementing those uh, those treatments, what would they just physically look like? Yeah, for a prescribed burn, you could imagine people uh, dressed in in the standard fire uniform, <laughs> the yellow the yellow shirt, the green pants, uh, and a hard hat, walking along a, a fire break with a drip torch, um, starting a fire, understanding the prevailing winds and the the weather conditions that allow for that kind of controlled burn, and then um, you know with the with the right infrastructure to address any kind of escapes. So um, just just uh, putting fire in the woods, as they say. Um, in, a, in a mechanical treatment, it's going to look more like a, a logging operation, except in this case, it's going to look more like a, a thinning operation with chainsaws. Uh, again, people 
uh, working with heavy equipment, uh, chainsaws, uh, pulling pulling the material out of out of the woods. Great. And just one more follow up question because I I've seen drip torches before and I've always wondered how they work. Like what is how does that work where uh, you can kind of drip uh, little bits of fire? Is there petroleum in in those uh, oh, torches yeah. or how, what is it? <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's petroleum. Based. I mean, in, in some cases, the, the, they can be ignited from from the air, from from helicopters, but um, it's a, a petroleum product that allows for controlled ignition along a line. Got it. That's super interesting. Yeah, I would love to see one of those operations one day. Obviously, uh, they probably don't let um, novices like me come out <laughs> come out and watch them too often. But it does does seem like it'd be pretty fascinating oh, yeah. to watch. Yeah. So um, let's talk now about a recent RFF issue brief that you published where you estimated uh, the potential outcomes from a recent bill that's been proposed in the Senate. Um, This is part of the big infrastructure package that's getting negotiated as we speak. Um, uh, And the bill itself was, um, uh, I think, uh, led by Joe Manchin, the uh, senator from West Virginia. So the bill that you analyzed would allocate $3.5 billion towards forest fuel treatments on federal lands that have high wildfire risk. So can you tell us a little bit about how you modeled the potential impacts of that spending and then help us understand what you found? Sure. Um, first of all, I thought it was it was uh, interesting and appropriate that uh, treating fire uh, fire-prone landscapes as part of an infrastructure uh, bill that, um, you know, this, this is about uh, altering our uh, vegetative infrastructure to, to be, to be more resilient. And uh, I, the, the, the bill targets about 10 million acres of fuel treatments as described earlier. Um, And, and this is about 20% of what the forest service has identified as the, the backlog, right? The, the, the amount of forest that actually is in need of this kind of treatment. It, it's focused on uh, areas with really high fire risk, as it should be, and, and would likely target areas that are, are adjacent to uh, communities um, and protect not only property, but also uh, uh, municipal watersheds as well. To my way of thinking, it is at 10 million acres uh, at consequential scale. It should have an impact. Um, so we tried to translate what that, that kind of treatment uh, intensity would mean in terms of changes to emissions. And as I mentioned earlier, we have data on how much, um, how much emissions result from, from wildfire and how that's varied over time and how it relates to area burned and the intensity of fires and the like. So to model the impacts, we had to sort of translate that 10 million acres into some effect on area burned as well as intensity of burn. But we also had to account for the carbon cycle, that tendency for for forests to to begin over again and to recapture a certain amount of the emitted carbon, just to, to, to look at the net changes that could result. I, I think it's safe to say that there are a lot of uh, uncertainties about some of the parameters in our models. And so we looked at a range of scenarios across what we thought was a reasonable range of those parameters and came up with a range of possible outcomes. Um, so we projected that um, somewhere between 11 and 50 million metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalents per year would be 
would be reduced. Um, and uh, with with a, a, a mid-range estimate of about 30 million metric tons of CO2 equivalent being the result of, of that kind of treatment regime. Great. And the scale of that is pretty pretty amazing. I mean, you mentioned, you know, 10 million acres a couple times. I was just doing some quick searching and, you know, the state of Maryland is about 8 million acres. Um, so we're talking about a really large um, area potentially. Are, are there logistical challenges to actually treating that much area over 10 years or whatever the time frame of the bill envisions? Yeah. I mean, there, there really is. Um, we're, we're talking about, a, you know, a change by an order of magnitude or two <laughs> to to the the treatment schedule right now and 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 that's important so we have this backlog of better than 50 million acres of high risk forests that that need this kind of treatment um and that's way beyond the regular fuel treatments that public agencies and others uh, engage in so you know this is like the difference between a capital investment and uh, a maintenance budget you know, we've, we've been working on maintenance when we need to do a substantial capital investment in building out this resilient infrastructure. And this is a step in that direction. You know, the bill anticipates the need for some support for this effort and, and actually includes funding for uh, an expanded fire workforce in the federal agencies, uh, technical and infrastructure enhancements uh, to both wildfire response as well as fuel treatment needs and uh, in addition research and development and other modeling uh, for, for this effort yeah it really sounds like some other aspects of of the infrastructure proposals you know there are many many of them that are floating out there at the moment but you know so many of them really take issues that have you know extensive backlogs whether they're environmental issues or just kind of you know physical infrastructure uh, like you know, roads and bridges and um, and rail, and really make a, a significant down payment uh, to start reducing some of that backlog. So, in the issue brief um, that you published, you noted that uh, at least in 2020, 70 percent of the acreage uh, that burned in wildfires in the United States was on federal lands. So, you know, federal lands are clearly a really big piece of this puzzle, but federal lands, you know, abut other lands that are owned privately or by states or are controlled by sovereign tribes. Um, so what sort of complementary activities uh, might other entities like states or localities or tribes or private landowners take to complement the federal actions that are underway? Yeah, you're getting at a, a really important point there, and that is that the most effective treatment strategies prioritize lands across the entire landscape not just on the federal um, landscape. And, and you know, in the West, public lands dominate. That's pretty clear. But there, there's a real strong need to coordinate management and treatments across all owners within a, a fire shed. Um, and public agencies, federal agencies, have been, have been working on, the, on this set of issues. It, it, it applies beyond fire. It applies to insect and disease problems as well. Um, and, and we've seen emerging uh, partnerships and the Forest Service is pursuing a concept that they called shared stewardship, which is an explicit partnering between the federal government and state government to address problems across all ownerships of, the, of, of, of these landscapes. Um, and the bill 
that we're talking about here does include uh, some substantial funding for additional collaborative forest land restoration. So it's, it is addressing that, that issue. Yeah, that's great. And are those efforts relatively new or have they been going on for, for a long time in sort of different forums and under different auspices? Well, I think they've been going on for a very long time. Um, the Forest Service has something called its state and private program, which is about uh, building out capacity and funding um, forest management, uh, forest treatments at, in those different ownerships. Yeah, that's interesting. So one um, entity that is obviously very interested in wildfires uh, is the timber industry. Um, I, I'm curious, um, to your knowledge, what are some of the actions that the timber industry um, could take or has been taking to address the risk of wildfire, which you know clearly poses a risk to their bottom line? Well, it's uh, worth pointing out that um, you know private, especially commercial. Uh, forests in the United States are the most heavily managed uh, forests, and and so they're they're less likely to be overstocked, and so the probability or the propensity for wildfire damage is lower, where uh, you know these commercial ownerships are are prevalent. Um, now that you know that doesn't address the issue where um, you know some some firms. Some components of the industry uh, depend on harvesting from from public lands, and clearly they're 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 strongly impacted. In addition, there's there's spillover mortality that you know, despite one's efforts to to build resiliency, they may be overcome by neighboring forest conditions. So so I see active management in the in the private sector to to reach that kind of uh, resilient forest structure. And is that something that just kind of happens in the process of doing business and of managing forests for uh, for harvest, or or would it require sort of additional steps that the industry would need to take? Well, I think it's it is part of the business model, but it is uh, explicitly uh, addressing risk mitigation. So it's not strictly an outcome of trying to uh, to grow more timber. It is uh, risk mitigation applied to timber growing. Uh huh. Interesting. So one other uh, topic that comes to mind that uh, I've been reading about a little bit uh, has to do with um, forest carbon offsets. Um, as many of our listeners know, you know there are so many uh, governments and, and private companies and others that are trying to achieve net zero emissions. And for some of those entities, that means investing in forestry projects that are designed to offset uh, the emissions um, that they can't get rid of, that they can't get out of their systems, for example, through aviation or some other uh, uh, industry. Um, to what extent do you know the increase in wildfires in the West pose a risk to the, the business model, if you will, or the environmental outcomes that we're seeking to achieve by investing in forestry to offset emissions. Yeah, that 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 again is a is a really good question, and I might go over the the edge here with some statistics, but uh, no, bring it bring it on. Hold me back if I do. <laughs> <laughs> so, if if we look at the forest sector as a whole um, in the United States, it's currently sequestering carbon at a fairly good clip. Uh, in spite of, of 100 million metric tons of emissions from wildfires, the the net sequestration after accounting for those emissions is about 630 million metric tons uh, per year, which is the, this, this is a carbon sink that offsets about 12% of the economy's emissions, 
it's a substantial and I would say consequential. And uh, so, so there are um, ways to enhance that carbon sink. But I think it's part of good practice to, to account for um, fire risk whenever one begins to calculate the carbon benefits of a, of a fuel treatment. In other words, incorporating fire probability and expected loss from fire uh, moving forward. It's also important to know that that carbon sequestration differs across uh, regions of the country and the potential for future sequestration differs across regions. In the West, where we're seeing much of this fire, um, we're, uh, we're beginning to see evidence that that those regions are shifting from a net carbon sink toward a net carbon source, or at least no net change over time. So in those places, um, the uh, the most effective uh, carbon carbon offset project, if you will, would be something that enhances resilience and maintains the potential of forests to to absorb carbon and and maintain a a, a sink. Whereas in the east, where we currently have 80% of our, our forest carbon sequestration, there's a strong potential to enhance um, th that sink by, by planting more trees and expanding the area of forest. So it's sort of a, a difference between uh, an expansionary policy in the east and sort of a protective or uh, enhancing policy in the west uh, moving forward. But again, I think good practice... Um, means accounting for those those risk probabilities and expected emissions as part of the the carbon calculus if you will. Yeah. Yeah, I'd never really thought about that. Do do you know if, you know, most current forest carbon offset programs do account for those expected losses from fire? Um yes. and if they do, do they, you know, are they updating those estimates based on the changes to uh, you know the frequency and intensity of fire that we're actually seeing in the real world yeah it's um so there there's a, a difference between voluntary offsets and um, you know programmatic offsets you know with the the, the California program um, and and so I think um, in general people are addressing that um, but with more rigor in the programmatic areas yeah. Really interesting. Uh, well, Dave, uh, this has been such an interesting conversation. I've learned a ton just in the last 25 minutes or so, um, but we're just about out of time. So uh, I'm going to move us now to our top of the stack segment where we ask you to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard lately. Um, it can be related to what we're talking about today or something else entirely if you want. Um, but uh, just curious to hear what you would recommend to our listeners. So what's at the top of your stack, Dave? <laughs> Well, my current bedtime reading, and so this is this is there's a bit of a hazard here because I haven't finished the book, <laughs> uh, <laughs> is a book titled uh, "The Ministry for the Future" by uh, Kim Stanley Robinson. It's speculative fiction about a a, a near-term future where the world is dealing with cascading climate change and crisis. But more fascinating to me is this, uh, you know, interplay of of nations and. Uh, the banking system and this entity that's called the Ministry for the Future, uh, which is a, a Paris Agreement offshoot that's uh, supposed to represent the interests of the future. Uh, there, there's a lot of uh, concepts from environmental economics playing out in a in a pretty fast-paced drama. Um, I, I think it's I think it's a great book so far. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I actually read that book recently because we are going to interview Kim Stanley Robinson in a couple months here on the show. Oh, excellent. Uh, and so we're going to talk about that book. And um, yeah, I also read it. It's really fascinating. Environmental economics actually comes in for some harsh treatment in that book. And that's one of the <laughs> things that I'm interested in asking him about. Uh, but it, it is a really yeah. fascinating read. Well, it is always important to read things you disagree with. Um. Indeed. <laughs> Absolutely. Great. Well, Dave Weir from RFF, uh, once again, thank you so much for coming on the show and helping us understand wildfires, uh, wildfire mitigation, forest fuel treatments, and so much else. We really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org slash support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, DC. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.